0: Hey y'all, it's Valerie popping in here at the top of the episode to give you one important update. Um, First of all, you can probably tell my voice is a little crazy. I am pretty sick right now, but I wanted to get this update out to you guys um, because I sort of all of a sudden (laughs) decided to do a massive rebrand and did not have enough time to go in and record a new intro and outro for this week's podcast episode before it was scheduled to come out. So you will hear the old intro and outro and the new one will be up before the next episode. And I will probably go in and update this episode as well once that is up. So just wanted to give you that heads up. Um, the new website is going to be at honor That's where show notes will be, but for now they are still over at badbitchtherapist.co. And I'm over on Instagram now at honor your spark. All right, let's get into this episode of formerly Shit Your Therapist Won't Tell You. And as of right now, honor your spark.
1: Therapy can be life-changing and wonderful, and it can also be, frankly, not all that helpful. As a therapist for over 12 years who now runs a whole team of amazing clinicians, I am far from anti-therapy, but I also became a certified coach because I didn't want to be limited in the kind of work I can do and who I can support. I'm Valerie Martin, aka Bad Bitch Therapist, and in this podcast, we're going to talk about the shit your therapist may not tell you, Because real talk, not all therapists are good at their jobs, but also a lot of therapy training is rigid and outdated, and your therapist might not work in a way that actually challenges you. Without compassionate challenging, your growth will be limited. So if you're with me, let's bust out of the traditional psychotherapy box and talk about wellness and high performance in ways that will make an even bigger impact in your life. Let's fucking go. Hey y'all, welcome back to the podcast. I'm just feeling in a very excited, giddy mood today. You're welcome. Hopefully that energy is contagious because I know that we are not always feeling this way. On Monday, I was feeling pretty low energy and I could have used a little dose of today, Val. So hopefully wherever these words are finding you, they are bringing a little bit of that good energy your way. Thank you so much for being here and listening, and let's get into what I've been watching, reading, and loving recently. So The Bachelor has returned, and if you've been listening for a while, you may have heard me say this before. I never once watched a single episode of The Bachelor until COVID, which of course turned everything in the world upside down, including that fact, and I started watching. I've missed some, like I haven't watched any Paradise. I didn't watch The Golden Bachelor, though I would, I just like wasn't feeling like putting in that time over the last few months. But I did quite like Joey from Charity's season. So I am excited for this season cautiously, right? Because of course, it's going to be a train wreck. It's supposed to be a train wreck. (laughs) But hopefully there will be some, you know, entertaining things and maybe some positive things that come out of it. So enjoying that. In fact, as I'm recording this, I've only watched the first week. So I'm going to go after this and watch week two that just came out. And then what I've been reading is so very many books, you guys, which feels so good to say. Again, as I'm recording this, it's the last day of January. I know this is coming out a bit later than that, but I have not missed a single day so far, 31 days straight of reading at least 60 minutes a day. I, I need to, y'all... I just had a realization. I need to send my old therapist an email. I've not seen Amanda in a while. And when I came into her, she probably thought, this is the weirdest goal for someone to have in therapy. But I remember telling her, I'm so frustrated with myself because I love reading. I've been saying for years, I want to read more. I want it to become more part of my identity, more part of my day-to-day, and I don't make the time for it. What the fuck is wrong with me, right? Now, that was when I was still dealing with a lot of shame gremlins, which (laughs) we'll get into in a moment. But all that to say, I should send Amanda an email and let her know how good I'm doing with it. I'm so proud. So, yes, change is possible, even with stuff that you have been frustrated about for years, I promise you. And, you know, it's kind of the strategies that I've learned in that are the things that I love to share with my coaching clients and here on the pod, too. So stay tuned. Anyway, back to what I'm reading. So a ton of books, but uh, I figured I would just highlight Microactivism by Omkari Williams, because that is the episode coming out after this one. The book we're diving into in today's episode is fantastic, too. And of course, you'll hear all about that today. But I wanted to put a little bird in your ear Telling you that you should definitely tune in to the next episode with Omkari. She's fantastic. Saving the world, one book at a time. (laughs) So, what I've been loving recently is writing my weekly tough love letter emails. I really put a lot of work in at the beginning of the year to revamp my newsletter. I just, it wasn't something I ever did super consistently, even though I feel good about my writing skills and I feel like I'm an entertaining writer and can deliver value, I wasn't really at my A game with my newsletter and I want it to be, and I want it to be like a curated thing that people are like, oh my God, I can't wait to see what she's sharing in this newsletter. So I have just released, the as I'm recording this, issue five of that. And if you are not already getting my weekly tough love letter, you can sign up at bit.ly slash toughloveletter, all lowercase. And that link will be in the show notes, too. Okay, let's get into what we're talking about today. In today's episode, we are talking with the fabulous author and therapist, Erica Hornthal. We are discussing her book, Body Aware, Rediscover Your Mind-Body Connection, Stop Feeling Stuck, and Improve Your Mental Health with Simple Movement Practices. This book, I mean, I yeah, I love almost all of the books that I read for this show, but this was so good, and we live in this time that is like, it's somatic this and somatic that, and everybody wants to study somatics, and yet, like, what does that even mean? Are we bringing depth to this work? And Erica is someone who has studied this work for over a decade as a dance movement therapist and licensed counselor. So let me read her bio, and then we will get into the convo. Erica Hornthal, known as The Therapist Who Moves You, is a board-certified dance movement therapist and licensed clinical professional counselor. She's the founder and CEO of Chicago Dance Therapy and author of the award-winning book Body Aware. As a licensed talk therapist, Erica knows that words only get us so far, but if we're willing to tap into its power, the body can take us the rest of the way as we process emotions and strengthen our mental health. Dance movement therapy provides the structure and space for people to truly listen to their bodies. This practice isn't just about being a perfect dancer or just letting loose and having fun. It's learning that movement is life. Our movements influence our thoughts, which influence our behavior, which makes us who we are. So you can find Erica online at erikahornthal.com. That spelling will be in the show notes. And she's on Instagram at the therapist who moves you with dots between the words and again her book is body aware you can find that anywhere you get books she also has a card deck that is now available called the movement therapy deck which yes you can get if you're a clinician but you can also just get if you want to be integrating somatic practices on your own that also relate to your general mind body mental health And she's also going to be speaking in April at the Expressive Therapies Summit in the Midwest. I'm looking at that like, "Mm, can I get there? That sounds really fun. So if you're listening to this and you have interest in that, if you're a clinician or related to the Expressive Therapies in any way, check that out. It is linked in the show notes as well as her Instagram bio. All right, let's get into the conversation with Erica Hornthal. This episode is brought to you by a private podcast from yours truly called You Are Motherfucking Enough. It's a four-part series that will teach you how to shift from patterns of self-doubt and criticism to owning your enoughness. I created You Are Motherfucking Enough because I'm tired of seeing how often self-doubt, shame, and constant criticism hold people back from fully stepping into their purpose, passion, and aliveness. And I believe that it takes a lot more than just an empathetic listener, whether that's a therapist, coach, or friend, to actually learn and apply the strategies that will make that powerful shift possible. I'm not kidding y'all, the value of these episodes is worth the cost of multiple therapy or coaching sessions alone, and you can get instant access to this series for zero dollars. I've condensed 12 years of experience working with these issues into 60 minutes of content. You don't want to miss this one. Get instant free access to listen almost anywhere you get your podcasts at bit.ly/mf-enough. That's all lowercase bit.ly/mf-enough and that link will also be in the show notes for the episode you're listening to. All right, let's get back to the show erica thank you so much for coming on the pod i'm super excited for this conversation
2: oh me too i'm so happy to be here
1: yeah so let's start with what is something that you wish a past therapist or coach would have told
2: you i wish someone had told me that age does not guarantee experience but that experience guarantees experience i feel like when i was coming up in my master's program, when I was an emerging therapist. And I think even now, knowing that there are so many people that have been practicing for years and years and years before me, some that I've met, some that I never will, some that have passed on, the narrative that was enforced and kind of reinforced over and over again was age begets wisdom. And the older you are, the more wise you are, meaning the more experience you have, meaning the better therapist that you are or coach that you are. And while I don't want to entirely negate that like with age comes experience, it doesn't always mean that a younger therapist doesn't have something to offer. If I had followed a lot of the suggestions that people had given me, I wouldn't have written a book. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today. So I think if someone had just said to me, don't listen to that, right? Everybody has experience and you can speak from your own experience without negating anybody else's wisdom or experience that they've had. It would have saved me a lot of frustration, a lot of hassle, and probably a lot of years of imposter syndrome.
1: Wow. That's excellent. And it makes me think about how in when I'm hiring that's one of the things even with hiring frankly a graduate intern like obviously i don't expect them to have any therapy experience yet i mean they may have done some coaching or mentoring or whatever but they're not experienced in that way but i'm like have you what is your life experience looked like because i want my first hire was a 23 year old and she came in with such i mean you know, life knocks us, some of us around a little bit. And because of that, she at 23 had, I think, a level of insight and self-awareness and ability to hold space that a lot of 40-year-olds don't have.
2: Yeah. You know, regardless of, maybe that's not the right word, depending on what your spiritual orientation is, right? Many of us are familiar with the phrase, an old soul You know, and that you can be a pretty young person, but have a pretty old head on your shoulders. You know, I feel like I was always getting that. I was always getting like, you're an old soul. And I always felt sometimes out of place because I was a little bit more mature than what was expected for my age. And I realized that comes with environment, that comes with upbringing. I never really saw it as a bad thing. But I think that because of that, I've just always thought deeply about things and, again, oftentimes it was kind of minimized, you know, it's like, oh, what do you know? You're young, Mm -hmm. you know, in the scheme of things, I think I'm still pretty young in the field, but I see people that are coming up in the field that have so much to offer just because of their perspective and that we also don't want to kind of, can't even think of the word, like oversaturate The water, right? Or kind of oversaturate the field with, well, everybody has something to offer. Everybody has a unique perspective. Therefore, everybody is is set to do this work. Right. Like again, it depends on what your life experience has brought you, but that we all have something to offer. I think for me, that's what is so powerful about movement is like when it comes to movement, we all have experience with that, right? Yes. The longer we've lived, the more we've moved, but also the more we've suppressed our movement. So who better than to go to like a younger person, you know, or the younger generation to kind of see how free they can be in their movement, because that oftentimes contributes to the free thinking as well. So, you know, there's, there's always limitations and parameters to everything, but yeah, I just, how many times people, you know, said, what do you know? You don't have this degree. You don't have that degree. You're not a PhD. What experience do you have? Who are you to write a book? Like, Okay. I mean, yes, there's a lot of talent, we'll say, out there, right? Like in this day and age, a lot, like you can publish what you want, you know, you can write a song and call yourself a singer. So it doesn't mean that it's going to resonate with a larger population. It doesn't mean you're going to be the next big thought leader, whatever that means. I just, I want people to know that any age has potential, you know, and that regardless of how old you are, you can still bring a lot to the table.
1: Mm, That's excellent. Okay. If you're ready for a taste of your own medicine,
2: Erica, how are you moving? (laughs) Well, I'm moving a little slower today, not entirely in a bad way though. We were just talking about this before we started recording that the holiday time for me is actually about slowing down, not about ramping up. It's about like tying up some loose ends, you know, especially from a business perspective, making sure my revenue and expenses are all, you know, ironed out. But uh, For me, it's kind of like the end of the hustle bustle. You know, we don't have to be anywhere. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to get dressed for school. We don't, we just kind of get to be. And with like the craziness that is the weather patterns, like I've been sounding nasal for the past like two months. So I think just slowing down my body too, you know, even when I'm exercising or dancing, I'm not really as full out as I think I would be if I just. Didn't have to think twice about my breathing, you know, Mm. but I'm intentional with my movement. That's something that I'm really aware of. And yeah, I think quality wise, like there's a lightness to my body, which feels really good because I think mostly during the year, there's a heaviness. (laughs) There's like a weight and a pressure to it. And as this week has gone on, I've felt that weight kind of dissipate, which has been really lovely.
1: And I would love for you to describe why it is that you... Ask that question a lot and why you feel like it's such a powerful question, even to kind of shake things up from the usual, like, how's it going? How are you doing? But like, how are you moving?
2: Yeah. Well, there's, there's multiple reasons. You know, I think one, there's kind of the, the gimmick of my online persona, which is the therapist who moves you. And I thought, oh, kind of have a catchphrase, you know, or, you know, what's something that I, that I offer always coming back to that lens of movement it's like well anybody can ask how are you feeling today i want to know how you're moving today mm-hmm. so that was that was one right kind of the marketing side of things but before that cuz that really wasn't the focus mm-hmm. before that you know my intention has always been to help people highlight and uncover how the way they move influences who they are how they think how they feel, how they behave. Movement really precedes everything. And so when I have a client come in and I just say, how are you feeling? I usually get the autopilot answer. Good, fine, fine. That's that's hands down the most (laughs) used answer, right? Fine. Uh And then we have to dig a little deeper. I'm like, what is fine? What does that look like? What does that feel like? In order to practice what I preach, I felt like changing up the question brought people out of autopilot And also centered them into their body. So, you know, how are you moving today? At first, it was very much, well, I'm sitting, I'm standing, I'm breathing. You know, then it became, well, I'm blinking, I'm thinking. I've had clients say, you know, well, there's cellular respiration happening and there's division, there's you know, things involuntarily moving through my body that I'm not even aware of. Then it got a little bit deeper and it would be the quality, like I just mentioned earlier, right? I'm moving through the world with this weight. I'm moving through the world with ease. I'm stuck. I'm stagnant. I'm frozen. I'm, you know, jittery, right? Like these qualities of movement, it starts to really uncover just how much movement there is in everything that we do, including our thoughts. Mm -hmm. So, I'm sure there are other reasons now that I've, you know, sat with it for a long time as to like why I asked that question, but it was truthfully to get people out of the autopilot of, you know, what is it that we feel because at the heart of it, we, we move through those feelings.
1: Absolutely. I I'm a big eco psychology person. And so I'm always oh, coming yeah. back to like, we're animals. <laughs> you know, we are animals. And so we are literally built oh. to move through the world and not just be a head that's
2: dragging around a body. So we're gonna Such definitely a small talk. part of who we yeah. are too, quite literally. Like I know our heads are the <laughs> right. heavy part, mm-hmm. but you know, we're really doing ourselves a disservice when we're only really looking at, you know a foot of the body versus like the entire thing, you know, if that would be like buying a property and only looking at the garage, you know, like you have to look at the rest of the house, right? Like walk through it, live through it. It just makes sense, but we don't do it. You know, we, yep. we just, we, maybe not the garage, maybe the kitchen, we're just focusing on the kitchen, you know, the living room, like the one room that we're going to occupy the most mm. when really we're occupying so much more of it.
1: Right. Absolutely. And that the rest of it is going to impact what's happening in that one room and how it feels to be in that one room. So we're definitely going to break down what it means to be body aware. But before we jump into that, I thought it would be useful to just get like a little bit of background on dance movement therapy. (laughs) I think it's important to to say that like, even if someone's like what dance movement therapy, I'm not going to read this book. This book is, if you are a human being who is listening to this, then this book is relevant for you. And, and all the things <laughs> we're going to discuss today are relevant right. for you, even if you don't consider yourself a dancer or any of that. But dance movement therapy is such an interesting sort of field. And I guess in a way, it's a field within mental health, but it's not necessarily just mental health. it's sort of all in, encompasses other things. So I'm going to read the definition that you shared in your book in your book from the American Dance Therapy Association. It says dance movement therapy is the psychotherapeutic use of movement to promote emotional, social, cognitive, and physical integration of the individual. And then you went on to also share the definition from another dance movement therapist, Jennifer Frank Tantia. It is a psychotherapeutic process that creates balance in the nervous system ownership of one's bot one's own body and the agency through movement which i thought was so beautiful yeah so yeah i mean i I don't know if there's anything you just want to say about the field of dance movement therapy and and how you i know there's a whole origin story of how you got there but just anything you want to share about the field for folks
2: who may not be familiar with it yeah i think you alluded to this, right, started to say, well, it's a field, it's a field within a field, you know, that it, and unfortunately it doesn't quite stand on its own for many reasons, some of which were intentional back in like the seventies or eighties. But for the most part, I think it's really important for people to know that dance movement therapy is a field of, of psychotherapy, right? It's, it's a, a niche psychotherapeutic field that's been, again, as this niche field, especially in the United States, that's been around since the 1940s, the 1950s. You know, I always preface that with like, well, dance as healing is, you know, indigenous. It's been around forever. So that's not new information. When we're talking about this field, it's when someone actually kind of put a curriculum together, you know, said, Mm -hmm. hey, these are the methodologies. These are the techniques. There's something here. We should start researching this, writing about it. We should create, master's programs or, you know, educational programs where people can actually learn and replicate this. So that's, that's what I'm talking about when I say this field of dance movement therapy. I think in the broader sense, people need to know it's an expressive arts therapy. It's a creative Mm -hmm. art therapy, which is up there with music, art, drama, poetry therapy, Mm -hmm. bibliotherapy, you know, the lesser known creative sides of therapy. What we're seeing now is a lot of people are using creative aspects within more traditional approaches to psychology and psychotherapy. Somatic is really trending right now. So while dance movement therapy certainly involves somatic, it's all about the body, it's not just trying on a somatic intervention. So it's a very specialized form where the therapist not only learns how to assess and observe and intervene in the client's movements, but actually uses their own body as a compass, as a tool within the therapeutic relationship, right? Like I'm referencing what I feel in my body. I'm noticing a shift in energy in my body. How much I say is really up to me. But that's the beauty of the conversation of the relationship is like, it's always two bodies having a conversation, not everything that we feel is verbalized. And so even using that example of like, how are you moving right now? It takes the client a moment to out of their mind, out of the the words and actually allows them to focus on like, what is it that I'm experiencing in this moment? Again, that's not proprietary to dance therapy, but for me, that's, you know, come from my experience in the dance therapist. And unfortunately, I think there are a lot of misconceptions. You know, dance comes with stigma. Therapy comes with stigma. You kind of throw them together and they're just, it freaks people out left and right. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's really about helping people understand that, you know, there's this metaphor of life is a dance. Everything that we do, right? We're dancing through things, relationship. We're dancing through health, wellness, illness, Uh, grief, loss, anxiety, everything. And if we really want to change the patterns and the habits that we've created in our lives, it benefits us to see how we move through them. Right. And so a dance therapist is someone who can really help uncover and allow someone to become more aware of how those things are patterned and embodied.
1: Mm. And you're using a shorthand dance therapist I think one thing that's sort of, I get confused about even in the field is like, okay, well you don't, dancing, like at least what we consider of dance as dancing doesn't necessarily have to be a part of it, right? That it's, it could be more other movements, other ways of assessing and shifting movement. However, you know, dance is obviously a beautiful, very broad component of what you could bring in. So
2: yeah. And it's, I, I imagine the field is still grappling with the name. I think it always will. Like I kind of joke that our field is always in an identity crisis because it was like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, even in the field itself, like, okay. So the class that I graduated with, we were a, I say big class. It was big for them. It was 30 people when typically they had about 15 or 16. So it was double the size And just the diversity within that group, we had dancers, we had yogis, we had, you know, people that were schooled in martial arts, we had some people that really didn't have a background in movement, but just were very grounded in their own bodies, like Mm -hmm. that in itself, you know, is kind of a recipe for an identity crisis, because, because we can't say you know, yes, you must have your bachelor's in dance. Everybody has their bachelor's in dance, and then you become a dance therapist. No, I didn't. I had my bachelor's in psychology. I love dance. I've been dancing since I was a kid, but I didn't actually have like formalized training with a degree behind it. So it is kind of this recipe for, I I joke, but like an identity crisis in a sense. But that's also, I think one of the things that makes it so amazing because there's such a broad sense of what we can do and that's confusing to a lot of people but Mm -hmm. that's also the beauty of like each therapist we bring our own tools to the table with an understanding and a grounding right like a technique as kind of like a baseline it's really delineating for people the difference between dance as an art form and dance as as expression Mm -hmm. right like I like to use the definition. It's actually a Britannica.com definition that dance is rhythmic movement of the body that expresses a thought or an idea. That's it. Like it doesn't incorporate choreography. There's no skill set. There's no technique. But then if we look at dance as the art form, that's entirely different. And to be honest, I don't really, it doesn't jive with me (laughs) as a dance therapist. I'm like, huh, is that the kind of dance that I do? Not really. So to go back to what you said, it's like, yeah, we can incorporate dance, especially if the therapist identifies themselves as a dancer. Like if someone comes in and says, hey, actually I had a client once. She was in early stages of dementia and her partner, her husband, was looking for someone to provide mental health support in addition to or through tap dance. And I actually had a lot of experience with tap dance. So did one of my therapists who ended up working with her. And it was this like, oh, we have this common dance under our belt. It's not, we're not teaching it. It's not a skill set, but it's another way of communicating. And it was beautiful. It was just a, a lovely partnership for them and a, and a way for her to express herself because words were not, were, were, we're not cutting it for her anymore. You know, so so yeah, some people call, like, you know, I do resonate with the dance piece. I'd like to focus on a certain kind of dance with regard to my wellness journey. And other times it's literally just that dance of life, right? How are we moving or not moving through things? And what can we do to change that so that we can ease the burden? Beautiful. So
1: getting more into sort of body aware and and why that felt so important that you wrote a whole book about it. (laughs) I know you start off by talking a lot about just the general lack of awareness in sort of our our modern culture and how that impacts everything our relationships with ourselves, with others our ability to self-regulate and to even just know what we're feeling and to be able to express that so I don't know if there's anything that you want to share just in general about that the the sort of foundation of lack of awareness and and using the body and exploring how the body moves as a way to build awareness.
2: Sure. You know, the irony actually, because you, you said, oh, you you wrote a whole book about it. The body aware wasn't the original title. Hmm. And what's so funny is like there was a chapter about becoming body aware that already defined what it was or what I felt like body aware was as opposed to body awareness. And then, you know, marketing, PR, all that stuff, we were like, let's change the title. So it did become a whole book about becoming body aware, what that means. And so I think that's why it was really important to focus on well, why awareness, right? Because we're so aware of things today. You know, we have all these technological advances, we have medical advances. We have so much knowledge. I mean, we can ask our devices for anything. You know, I don't have to go to the library to look stuff up. I don't have to, I don't need an encyclopedia. Like, literally just go to the internet. Doesn't mean it's always right, but Mm -hmm. you know, that's another story. But I think with that comes so much that word again, autopilot you know, that I don't have to think critically for myself. I don't have to come up with with a solution. I don't have to really be aware of much because all I have to know how to do is ask something a question and get the answer. So, you know, I wrote this so long ago, but I remember it so clearly, this was going to go in the book. This was like the only thing I had written, but this Mm -hmm. is what was going in the book that the body holds answers to questions. The mind doesn't even know to ask. And if all we're doing is living in a mind that asks questions we never really uncover the answers that are already inside of us. So body aware was about starting to uncover and sit with and be with a body that is holding a plethora of answers that we don't even know to look for.
1: That's so powerful. And you talk about how because of that, body awareness is really becoming body aware is the most important step that a person can take if they want to transform really anything in their life. And that how you move in your life has a huge impact on who you are and who you become, that your body has this wisdom, but if you never listen to it or if you actually suppress and silence it, then you're never
2: going to benefit from what that knowledge could teach you. Right. Absolutely. And it's not just about, you know, notice the air or deep, deeply breathe, you know, five, Mm. four, three, two, one. Like it's not just those somatic interventions. It's really, taking a look at how we already exist, how we show up in the world, you know, at the heart of it, becoming what I call body aware is just recognizing how the way you show up influences the thoughts and behaviors that you have, right. That the mind body connection, that they're not separate. One influences the other, you know, and that I can quite literally become more aware of my own internal reality, right. To kind of shift what it is that I'm thinking or feeling. Or, to just have more awareness around it, right? So different than body awareness, right? Because body awareness is like, where is my body in space? What do I feel in my body? That's all part of becoming body aware. But for me, it was really about linking the mind and body, right? It was like how the way I experience my body influences the thoughts that I have. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you talk about noticing what your, primary languages versus what might be more your foreign language and yeah then how to sort of notice our propensity to maybe not always make that translation uh, i really appreciated how you even say in the book how that your your sort of primary first language is of the mind and so you have yes. to be <laughs> intentional and i relate to that too and i used to you know, as someone who like embodied healing is literally in the name of our practice, I would feel like, oh no, if people really knew what, when, what was happening inside, right? Like I'm such right. a cognitive person, but, but that was so beautiful how you describe that, that it's really about becoming bilingual and noticing when we, when that in the earlier phases of doing that, that you might need to be much more intentional about making that sort of translation
2: between the mind and body language. Yeah. You know, I use the example, maybe not in the book so much, but I use the example in my life a lot of how I was born into a worrying family, you know, and then it was like, well, you're just a worrier. This is what, this is what we do. We worry, you know, and I never questioned it, you know, I just thought, okay, this, this, this is what we do. We get anxious about things. It's kind of our way to control things that we can't really control, you know, until as I did this work more and more and started, you know, working with my own therapist and also just, you know, experienced through working with clients. I was like, wait a minute, I don't have to live this way. And a lot of that was so much in my head. That in order to really start to pattern or rewire that differently, I had to notice how it was showing up in my body, you know, and that Mm -hmm. it wasn't something that was permanent. It wasn't like you were born with this anxiety and it is hardwired in you. I mean, it may feel that way, but we can actually repattern that. It's not permanent. So that's scary in itself, because if that's become our identity, it's really hard to let go of that piece. Uh, and it was, not going to lie, that was not easy. I still, I mean, everybody gets anxiety, but uh, I relate to it so differently now. And so that wouldn't have happened if I just continued to rely on that primary language of mind, you know, mind rules the roost and mind over matter. And there's a lot of that narrative still out there. And I don't really think that one is more important than the other. But I realized that in my in my writing, in my social media posts, I I do tend to go to the extreme of like body needs to be prioritized. Right. At the end of the day, they need to communicate. We just, we just need to have a mind body balance. Right. But I feel like, you know, of, of we're in this day and age, right. Where like the, this idea of like oppression, right. Coming to light. It's like, who better to have their time to speak than the body because it's been oppressed for so long, you know, Uh, and that might be overgeneralizing. I don't mean to minimize people's experience of oppression, uh, but the body is oppressed, the body is suppressed. So it's like, here's a platform where the body gets to speak, right? The mind gets to take a back seat, and we kind of give it its its day in the sun. We kind of have to go to the extreme, right? If mind always ruled, r- rules the roost, I don't want to silence my mind, but sometimes I got to, I got to like silence it enough so that the body has a chance. And then when the body's voice comes through, it's like, okay, how can we work on that translation? You know, body is sensational. Mind is, really judgmental. So how do we, how do we, you know, find a balance between the two? How do we allow ourselves to be in sensation, notice the judgment that comes up, but not allow it to overtake us? It's really hard.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think like anything that gets sort of reduced to a two-dimensional, like Instagram reel or TikTok, there's always potential for things to be misinterpreted or misconstrued. And I think like you said, with somatic stuff being so trendy right now, I think part of the thing that I have seen come up with that is when our the communication that's happening between mind and body happens so quickly and so sort of subconsciously that we we aren't even aware that it's really happening. So for instance, it's like, if somewhere in my history, my mind created an association that when this feeling in my chest shows up, that means something is wrong in my relationship. And, you know, and so I've seen this with like relationship OCD kind of stuff like,
2: oh no, the feeling
1: is there. Oh no, the relationship is not right. Right. And, and actually helping people decouple that and recognize the stories that we associate with some of the things our body communicates that, you know, we sometimes have to decouple or unpair those things because we're writing stories and connecting dots that may actually not need to be connected and might actually harm us if we assume that they're connected. If I assume this sensation in my body means blank.
2: Right. Well, and I also appreciate how you even highlighted one side of the connection, right? That it's the mind that's like, oh no, I'm feeling this. This is what it means. It's not necessarily the body's explanation or expression of what it's truly feeling. So we have to remember that before the mind says, oh, no, there's that feeling. This is what it means. And it's making judgments that there was still something before that, right? Like there was something before that preceded the thought that felt the sensation that judged what it was, you know, and that really can be helpful for a lot of people because it's like, well, what did I feel before I had that thought? maybe i was calm maybe i was relaxed mm. the relaxation puts me on guard and then i have the thought of oh my god something's going to fall right yeah. the ground's going to break the sho- the other shoe's going to drop it's not safe to be in this relationship and it's like but actually the whole time you maybe this isn't true for everybody but right. like maybe you were actually letting your guard down your body relaxed and that's what caused the spiral response,
0: Yeah. right? Like I've
2: seen that happen. I know it's not that way for everybody, but there's, there's, there's movement, thought movement. It's just this constant cycle. So we want to be careful that we're not starting in the thought cycle every single time. And that if we are, that we're like, what happened before I had this thought? Right. (laughs) Did, was there a breeze? You know, was there a shift in the environment? Did someone say something? Was there a loud noise? Like what sparked this thought that oh my god something bad could happen you know it's hard to identify we might not always be able to but it's just having that curiosity right like mm-hmm. be curious about what's going on in the body and you might be surprised what you uncover
1: yeah and that sometimes it might be the thing that is counterintuitive and and it's not Counterintuitive, based on what we are taught, that ends up actually helping. I'm thinking about the example in the book where you talk about having white coat syndrome, and and I don't know if you want to just share that about that what that experience was, and that it very much wasn't the well, just calm down and take a deep breath, Erica.
2: Right, like, okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, I just ever since I can remember, and I say, I say I'm recovering from because it still okay. rears its ugly head every now and then, but like ever since I can remember, I was just afraid to go to the doctor. I went, I'm not one that like avoids the doctor because that to me is even scarier. Mm. You know, I'm one of those people where it's like, if you could give me every single test every year, I'd probably sign up for it (laughs) just to have that peace of mind. Why don't we get body scans? I don't know. Anyway, because I like the prevention, not just the intervention. So, and that's not really the way the Western model works. So anyway, for me, white cope syndrome was like, going to the doctor means something must be wrong. And if something is wrong, then I should be scared. You know, I should panic. And then eventually that just became, I have to go to the doctor. I'm panicking. Like I just have anxiety, you know, like I could drive in the car. Everything's fine. I tell myself I'm okay. I'm calm. And then it's like the minute I pull into the, 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 you know, parking lot, my no joke, like my, blood pressure just skyrockets. Mm -hmm. And uh, the older, like I could kind of minimize that for a while until the older I got, suddenly there was concern, right? A doctor would be like, you have really high blood pressure. I was like, no, no, no. I'm just nervous. No, this can't just be nerves. Like you must be having this throughout the day. And I was like, well, no, because I feel what this is like. I get dizzy. I get clammy. I don't have that during the day. You know, then you have to prove it. Right. Well, right. I want you to go home and take your blood pressure three times a day for a week. Like, so then it creates more panic, you know? Right. So the example that I give in the book was like, as I was working through this, which I had been for a long time, you know, when I was starting to have kids, you end up going to the doctor a lot. And I was like, I'm literally going to give myself a panic attack every week unless I really start to evaluate what's going on here and calm myself down. And so I started to just practice what I preach. I would go into the doctor's office. You know, you end up waiting in the examination room longer than you'd like. And I just started matching the intensity in my body. So instead of laying down or sitting down and trying to deep breathe, I got up, I started jumping, I started shaking, I started shimmying, wiggling, whatever that was. And even though originally it starts to feel like you're, you're ramping it up, you know, that your heart rate's increasing, your blood pressure actually starts to regulate because you're just expressing what is, what's coming up. And so I might be a little like, but then I would just like, you know, come to a place of rest. I would sit down and I would say nine times out of 10, when they would go to take my blood pressure, the reading was normal. It was just, it was just crazy. Or like the, 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 I always forget diastolic and whatever the top number would be a little bit higher, which just usually shows an increased heart rate, but the lower number would be within that normal range that wasn't happening, you know, coupled with, I'm sure I was on birth control for a while. That certainly did a number to my blood pressure for a long time. So I don't want to say that that's the, that's it. Right. But yeah, that was a pattern for me. That was a habit for me. And I think what happens to a lot of us is like, for better or worse, there's a lot of medical gaslighting, you know, and it's one thing to not, to, to not know to ask, right. Or say, Hey, I'm having these symptoms. What do you think this could be? But when you're told what you're experiencing, you know, oh, you have this, it must be this. Uh, I was like, I appreciate that you're saying that, but I don't think you're really listening to me. And so then I would start to ask, like, can you take my blood pressure at the end? Right. Can I can we wait till there's a clean bill of health and I feel like a sense of calm and then you take my blood pressure? That helped a lot. Also, just advocating and saying this is going to be really high. I take it at home. This was my reading this morning. You know, I have a doctor that really trusts that process and is really empowering, like to take charge of kind of your own health in, in a way that feels good for both of us. So I think like being on the same page just felt better. And then she knows that I know my body enough that if something is really off that I would come to her and say, you know what, these readings have been high, you know, or, I'm noticing these symptoms that weren't there before. Can we, can we talk about this? So that might've been more than you wanted me to go into detail about. I think, yeah, a lot of us, like we have these narratives, right. I've got white coat syndrome and it works for us until someone says, well, I don't think you do. I think you have more than that, you know, or this is really a problem. Well, is that going to help? Cause that just, they were like, Oh gosh, your blood pressure just got higher. Yeah. You think, yeah, Did you right. think it was going to go down after you gave me some random diagnosis? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, the two
1: pieces there that I think are are super important is like one, what actually helped you was meeting your mood and your yes. energy level first before you attempted to shift it, right? Because like Boy. the telling yourself "come down, come down, come down," like when does that ever work, right? So, and I think right, I, I see what a lot medical of people- professionals do yeah. sometimes. Oh yeah, right? I mean I that's like, their just training, take right? Deep breaths. Yeah, exactly. And and whenever, like as a, as a yoga teacher, it's like if you try to get an anxious person to go to a restorative yoga class, often like th- that is not the thing that's going to feel good or to sit and meditate, right? It's like yeah. they might need to, you know, do some calisthenics or do some jumping jacks and then maybe they can do a slower practice. So that's one really important piece. And then the other thing is just that, like you said, as much as I wish that there was better training and people didn't have to advocate for themselves so much. We really do. And I think people need to hear that like you have permission to advocate for yourself and that, everyone deserves to have a, a doctor who is willing to like listen and be collaborative. Like you're saying, I think of course, especially folks who have any kind of medical anxiety, that's an imperative, but mm-hmm. anyone deserves to have that kind of, you know, relationship with their physician. And so like, if you don't have that, you're allowed to fire them and try to find someone else. And and I know that it right. gets complex with insurance and all of the the shortages oh, yeah. and everything, but it's, you know, that's something I'm definitely passionate about wanting for people. Yeah.
2: And I realize this probably, this isn't the focus of our conversation, Mm -hmm. but I think just so people listening understand that, I think for me also what made me want to repattern a lot of that was the fact that I had kids and I didn't want my kids to live that life either, you know, of always being afraid to go to the doctor because that's kind of what I grew up with. And so now, I mean, they're still young, but you know when we go for like our physicals or we go for you know a checkup because we're not feeling well. There's not anxiety, and and I'm not bringing anxiety to the table either. Of like, oh my god, I hope you're okay. I mean, I might be thinking it, but I recognize in my body like what movement patterns are helpful and what aren't. And it's been really beautiful to witness that like my kids can go and feel. Again, I recognize that this is a privilege in many senses, but like safe. Mm to seek medical attention and that it doesn't mean something's detrimentally wrong. We shouldn't necessarily be afraid of it. Again, this is my own experience. So I recognize some people listening might be like, nope, that's not true. Or that's not my lived experience. So just bear with me with that. But it was my kids. A lot of it was my kids. I was like, I don't want to perpetuate this generational trauma in a sense, Mm -hmm. right? Of like, we're all afraid of doctors. It was like, no, We we can work through this, right? And yeah, if something doesn't feel right, I can I can go to someone else, I can see a specialist, I can, you know, do what feels right for me, but I didn't want it to be the norm. I didn't want it to be a well, we're a family of warriors, so you get what you get. I was like, no, I want different for them. I want them to be able to recognize that they may be scared or anxious about something, and that we can we can continue to move through it. So that was a big motivator for me. And I think it ends up being a big motivator for a lot of people out there too, that like. We don't want the generation after us to suffer the way we did right yep. and so we're constantly trying to use that as like okay how can i help them
1: right and to to know that you needed to do more to make that change happen than to sort of brute force your way to try to make yourself have a different belief right like because right. you you already knew intellectually that it was fine but it was right. so, so it's like that's not that's i think a lot of people get caught in that cycle of beating themselves up and going like ah oh, just need to get over it right okay but is that working
2: <laughs> yeah no no we really have to let stuff in if we want to let it go you know the whole like just let it go I'm like uh, ah, it actually doesn't work that's just suppressing it more
1: <laughs> right bypassing yeah so a lot of the book is really oriented toward like these sort of what does it take to become more body aware of you know recognizing your body vocabulary like what does it already look like now challenging your movement expanding that repertoire so people can obviously dig more into all of that if they pick up the book but one topic i i know that a lot of people want to hear about is boundaries. And I think there's so much Mm. that, I mean, we experience when we think of what a boundary is, you know, it's like where I end and you begin and, you know, whether that's an individual relationship or a family, a community, et cetera. And so it really brings such, the physicality is so much a piece of that. And so I imagine, or I know from experience too, that the use of the body and movement in exploring that can be certainly a lot more transformative than just kind of talking about it
2: conceptually. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, I, if someone comes up to me and says like, oh, I, you know, I really want to work on boundaries and, and, you know, do you have an expertise in that? Like, it's funny because that was never my go-to. I was, you know, I was never, I do that with trauma too. I'm not like, well, I'm not a trauma expert, Mm -hmm. but, but the body lends itself to everything, you know, that, it just goes hand in hand that if we're trying to set better limits and create better boundaries, that it starts with the boundaries we have around us and within us, like quite literally when we learn to move as an infant, we are constantly navigating like what is us and what isn't us pushing, pulling, uh, reaching, grabbing, pushing, you know, like, so, it's been so long since we've had to explore that for ourselves. Like a lot of those patterns are just ingrained and then they're kind of autopilot going back to a place where we can start to explore, like, what does it feel like to push? What does it feel like to stand my ground? What does it feel like to be pushed? What does it feel like to lose my balance? Like these are all ways that we compromise ourselves, you know, all ways that we minimize our own authenticity. We are our, our own authority it's really empowering sometimes for people to just stand in their authority, stand in what they know or what they don't stand in what they like, what they don't something as simple as like pushing against the wall. You know, what does it feel like to stand that ground? What does it feel like to stand on your own two feet metaphorically, but also physically it's been really empowering. And boundaries is like one of the one, one of the things I love to work with in the body. Cause there's just like endless possibilities. I remember working with a client once where, someone had left in my office, like a bunch of yoga blocks. And so I just took them all down. We made this like fake brick wall Hmm. and we just practiced and kind of experienced back and forth what it felt like for someone to push down our wall, push on our wall, push against our wall. I remember at one point we were being very careful and kind of just Jenga-ing, you know, like, I don't want, I don't want it to topple. And then I had this impulse all of a sudden and I just smashed the wall down. And she had this face of like, what the hell did you just do? Like, what's going on here? And I was like, how does that feel? (laughs) Oh, like what happened to your body when I did that? You know, we have a good rapport. So I knew that I wasn't going to like send her over the, over the edge, but there's so many ways to explore, you know, how our body feels in relation to these really big themes and boundaries is one of those. And we learn them from a very, very young age, like before we're two
1: yeah absolutely there's this quote from one of dave rico's books he's a a therapist and amazing author and it's something about like when you're even being very little being hugged or held every cell in my body knew the difference between when something was being given and when something was being taken
2: and that just like
1: always gives me chills think because we know we just feel it we that
2: neuroception yep that exchange absolutely Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of narrative around that, right? Like we don't want to force kids to do things, you know, balancing it with the well respect for, you know, this person, elders, et cetera. Like it's a hard territory to navigate. I think at the heart of it, we want to have conversation around it, right? We yes. want to bring the body into the conversation. How did that feel for you? How does your body feel when, you know, what feels okay? What doesn't, you know, it goes into things like body autonomy, Yeah. It's just, you know, within reason we're having these conversations, developmentally appropriate conversations. Right. But there's so much that we, we, we override in the body when it comes to boundaries that I think just beginning to explore how it feels to be in a body with boundaries, right. In an environment that has boundaries is really powerful.
1: So good. Well, I could keep asking you questions for another hour, but in respect <laughs> of your time, I would love to hear what you have going on. I know you've got a card deck coming out that it looks really amazing, but anything that you want to share with the people about what you're up to and where they can find you?
2: Yeah. So, well, first and foremost, I'm actually co-hosting an expressive therapy summit in Chicago next April. So if anybody is interested in like, in person experiencing the power of the healing arts, music, art, drama, dance, I'll be there. They can find more about it at expressivetherapysummit.com. But with regard to what I'm doing specifically, yeah, I've got, I have a copy here, the movement therapy deck and just in a nutshell. So this was really born out of a need for people to find a way to process tragedy unfortunately, which a lot of us are going through and it's kind of running rampant through our country, especially a way for people to just start to regulate their nervous systems. If one, they can't talk about it, two, that they don't have the ability to go talk to someone or be with someone, or if talking about it isn't enough, that it's my goal or certainly my intention that like every therapist office has one, every school has one, every guidance counselor, crisis counselor, like talking about these tragedies sometimes often creates more trauma. We really want to start to balance out what the body is experiencing. And so tangible cards, just a prompt and a physical thing that you can do to start regaining a sense of safety in your body. So that's coming out in March. Anywhere books are sold, people can purchase it online. So.
1: Oh, great. Can't wait to get a few copies for our office.
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
1: Cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was amazing. And I just can't recommend the book enough. So I hope everyone listening goes
2: and gets a copy. Oh, thanks, Valerie. I really appreciate it. And yeah, have a wonderful day. Thanks for having me.
1: Hell yeah, friend, you made it to the end. I so appreciate you tuning in. And if you enjoyed this episode, make my day by subscribing and leaving a five-star rating to help other people find this podcast. You can follow my antics on TikTok at badbitchtherapist and on Instagram at the same with dots between the words. Also make sure to sign up for my weekly tough love notes where I bring even more vulnerability and strategies to plug into your day-to-day. Look for that at badbitchtherapist.co. Thanks so much for being here. Now go out there and slay the hell out of this week.